it's probably our prayer life that's causing this problem. There's a demon in there somewhere. But I joked with you, we were going to start a campus in the Destin, Fort Walton, Santa Rosa area called Christ Church, Emerald Coast. So I want to speak to those that are at Christ Church, Emerald Coast, because I know a number of you are down there now, and I know every one of you are watching this right now. You're not on the beach. I know that you're watching, so we're going to pray for you. we got a lot of people that are down there now. we got a lot of people that are going this week, uh, whether it's uh, Orange Beach or Gulf Shores or Destin or Santa Rosa. and It's uh, all up and down through there. It was, uh, we were in Santa Rosa last year, in May of last year, and came back. And if you've been to Santa Rosa, they had these little blue stickers everywhere, blue. And they look, I thought, <laughs> I hate to share my ignorance with the world, but uh, you already know I'm ignorant, so I'll share it anyway. So I thought the little blue stickers with the, like a, looks like a sunburst, I thought they were all putting Walmart stickers on the back of their cars. I, I openly admit that. And so I kept asking, what is this? And finally my daughter, Beth, said, Dad, the people that live down here, that's like their logo for the community down here, everybody. Like if you own a place down here or you live down here, they have those on their cars. I said, okay, that's cool, now I understand, because I couldn't even find the Walmart. I was, so I live right here in Ewing Place, many of you know, and so Dusty Field's a road that comes by, my, everybody goes down Dusty Field to cut over to Milton Wilson to get on the interstate, so we, we built our house in the perfect place for all the traffic. So I'm li- literally, we get back, it's May of last year, and we get back from Santa Rosa the next day, I'm leaving my house, and I turn out of my street to get on Dusty Field to go cut over to Milton Wilson to get on the interstate like everybody else. As soon as I turn on Dusty Field, literally the house right there, this is like four houses from mine, the house right there had a car parked in front of it with one of those stickers on it. I thought, well, now I know that that's not a Walmart employee. That's somebody that owns a place in Santa Rosa. For all of you in Santa Rosa slash Destin slash Emerald Coast, welcome the Christ Church Emerald Coast, the rest of us are not going to pray for you because we're jealous, because we know what you're doing. All right, enjoy. All right, Romans chapter 3, if you will turn there and then look at your handout. And as I've shared with you on several occasions, this sermon series that we're doing on Who's Your Daddy has been incredibly encouraging to me, not just as a, a pastor but as a believer in Jesus Christ, to constantly, it's been great for me to spend time in the Word of God and be reminded regularly of how special it is that I'm a child of God. What does it mean to be a child of God? What does it mean that I am one of His children, that I am part of God's family? Because one of the things that is rampant in our culture in America and is even beginning to to sweep through the evangelical community in the United States of America is that everybody's a child of God and all dogs go to heaven. And by dogs, I don't mean the four-legged kind. That we're all going to get there in the end. Don't worry about it, which is the great lie and the thing that Satan wants us to believe. That we're not sinners, that we're not basically evil, and yet the Bible makes it clear for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which is in the passage that we're about to study this week and next week. And I was reading a cute story this week about a Sunday school teacher, 
It's kind of a children's church thing. Lady had all the kids around, and the most basic principles we teach in evangelical church in the Christian community is when, when you're trying to teach children to begin to teach them truths from Scripture, usually the first truth you teach them is that God loves you. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. We, we start teaching them that when they're very young. God loves you. And we will gradually, and that you're, you're created on our refrigerator. We've got a picture of our youngest granddaughter, made it here on a Sunday morning, that says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Teaching that principle that God made you and that you're special. And so as, as they begin to grow, and as we want to teach them other principles, we then get to the fact that Jesus died on the cross for you so that when you die, if you trusted Jesus to save you, you go where? Try work with me. You go Heaven. All right, even through a mask, I can hear you. You go to heaven. So when you die, you go to heaven. And so you, you know, then you start asking the question, well, why do I get to go to heaven? And the great principle that we're going to look at this week, the title of it is that our God is righteous or that he's just. This encompasses the fact that God is a God of wrath. Not something popular to talk about in the church today, that God is a God of wrath. But we're going to deal with that. Why? Because it's so beautiful to understand God poured out his wrath on Jesus' back so that he didn't pour it out on whose? Yours. And so this lady had the kids together, and she's teaching them that great principle, how do you get to heaven? So she's asking them, if I were really good, and I came down to the church every day, and I cleaned the church, and I, and I worked really hard, would I go to heaven when I die? And all the little kids said, oh, you don't know the answer. They said, no. They said, would that get me to heaven? And all the little kids said, no. She said, well, well, what if I was really good and sold all my stuff, sold my house, sold my cars, had a giant garage sale, and sold everything I had, and I gave all the money to the church, and then would that get me into heaven? What did the kids say? No. She said, what if I was just really, really good and I... And I mowed Randy's yard every day, because every week, because you know it needs it. He doesn't know what he's doing. He can't edge properly. So if I went over and did that for him and did everything for Randy and Mary and, and just, I was really good, treated the dogs and the cats and all the animals well, and I handed out candy. To, you, know, you understand why I give out suckers on Sunday morning, right? Because you're buying your way to heaven. So if I gave candy to the children, I did all these really good things. Would I go to heaven? And all the kids said. She, so she's, very, she's beaming inside because they know they got it right. So finally she, she says, well, what have I got to do to go to heaven? And one of the five-year-old boy jumps up and says, you got to die. And R.C. Sproul was talking about this story, theologian R.C. Sproul, a very deep guy, and he said, that's the concept that's sweeping the church. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, whether you're good, whether you're bad, no matter, it's all relative, and that when you die, we all go to heaven. We ultimately get there. That being the case, why did God pour out his wrath on Jesus Christ? He poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ because somebody's got to pay for your sin. And so what I want to do this week and next week, and I want to pray before we get into this because it's, it's critically important especially as evangelicals, that we understand this principle. 
and that we communicate it in a loving, gentle, respectful way to everyone that we can that God loves you and he sent his son to die for you to pay your debt that you owe that you could not pay. So let's take a moment and pray together and then we're going to get into Romans chapter 3. Would you bow your heads? Father, as we take this time to begin to look at your word, this incredible principle, this attribute of yours, really more than an attribute, it's who you are, that you're righteous, that you're just, that you're fair, that we would understand it, Father, in the, in the deepest parts of our being and the depths in which we need to understand this simple yet profound principle that you're righteous and that you express your nature to us by being righteous toward us, by showing us your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start in Romans 3, but I want you to listen to this verse. We talk, we've quoted it many times. I'm going to quote it again so you, we're all on the same page as we get into this. God took him who knew no sin, made him sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Who's the him? Jesus Christ. So God took him who knew no sin, Jesus, who was perfect, sinless, made him sin for us, or the sin sacrifice, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. That is so key to understanding everything in Scripture, understanding the plan of redemption, understanding what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be saved, what it means that when I die I get to go to heaven, what it means that in this life I have peace, hope, and I understand the meaning and purpose of life is that God so loved me that he gave. I can become righteous. God demonstrated, communicated his righteousness to us publicly. It talks about this in Scripture. We'll see it in the next couple of weeks as we walk through this. He publicly demonstrated his righteousness to us at a place called Calvary at an event called the crucifixion. That when Jesus died on the cross on that public thoroughfare, that hill, the skull, Golgotha, as he died for our sins, God was publicly manifesting and demonstrating to us, I'm righteous because I'm going to take he who knew no sin and make him the sin sacrifice for you that you might become the righteousness of God in him. That's why when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says two things. He says seven things, but two things that are critically important for this message. Number one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not Father. Only place in Scripture you'll see in the New Testament, you'll see Jesus refer to God and not call him the Father. At that moment, he calls him God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Psalm 22. Because at that moment, he was sin, and God would not look on sin. He turned his back on it. As Jesus died as the sin sacrifice for us. Imagine the agony of that. You had never known sin. For all eternity, you'd been perfect harmony, love, and fellowship with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. And suddenly, you're out because you're the sin sacrifice. And the other magnificent truth that Jesus spoke from the cross is, it is finished. It's done. And we've talked about this many times. We always talk about it at Easter. When Jesus said, it is finished, in the original language of which he spoke those words, it means the debt is paid in full, stamp it. 
paid. Randy sin debt. Mike sin debt. Darren sin debt. Hitler sin debt. Think about that. Every human being from Adam to this day, going forward, everyone that will be born, Jesus paid their debt because they, you, me, could not pay it. All our righteousness is filthy rags. There are none righteous, no, not one. We could go on and on for all of sin, Romans 3.23. We're going to look at it. And fallen short of the glory of God. All have. It doesn't matter if you're Mother Teresa, if you're Billy Graham. No matter who you are, you're going to fall short of the glory of God. So therefore, God will give you that glory in Christ. That's why the crucifixion is the most significant event that ever happened in human history, the crucifixion and the ensuing resurrection. Because without it, we have no hope. With it, we have all hope. So the righteousness of God, the fact that he's just in all that he does, God is infinitely righteous in everything he does. And it's throughout Scripture. I'm just going to quote some passages to you, and then we're going to move on. Starting in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Now this is in the law. God has delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, set them free, instituted the Passover, picturing for them God's redemption, salvation that he has given to them physically, and pictures for us that Jesus is coming, the, our, the Messiah is coming, our Passover lamb, and if the pet death angel passed over them because they had the blood on their doors, and in Deuteronomy 22, Moses in the law writes this, God is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Psalm 89 says this, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, God, mercy and truth go before your face. Psalm 119, the Bible says, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. Your law is truth. One of the things you'll see throughout Scripture is that you'll see these things tied together. Righteousness, mercy, loving kindness, grace, truth. And we're going to see a lot about the aspects of grace and mercy in understanding the righteousness of God and that he's just in all that he does. Grace is God giving to us something we don't deserve. Mercy is God withholding from us what we do deserve. And both are encapsulated, pictured, and publicly demonstrated and manifested for us at a place called Golgotha, Calvary, the crucifixion. God publicly says, here's grace. What I've been telling you about all these years, here it is. Here's mercy. Instead of my pouring out my wrath on you, what you deserve as a sinner, I'll pour it out on my son who does not deserve it. He'll be your substitute. That's why the great theological term it's used, Jesus' death, it's substitutionary. He is the substitutionary atonement. Atonement means covering. It's a word that's used in Genesis 3. After original sin, God provided a covering. The Hebrew word means atonement, that God covered their sin. When Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, 
And when by faith I trust that to save me, the Bible says I am, my sins are atoned for and they're covered by Jesus' blood. Pictured in Genesis 3. Pictured in the Passover lamb. Pictured in the Levitical priesthood. Pictured in the sacrificial system. Pictured in the tabernacle. Pictured in the, the uh, serpent in the wilderness held up on the pole. Pictured in the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. You can go on and on and on and on. All these types and shadows in the Old Testament are God picturing for humanity that I am a God of love, mercy, grace, truth, and I am righteous. And everything I do is 100% just or righteous. It's everlasting. It's not temporary. In Hebrews, God says this. Jesus himself shared in the same flesh and blood that through death he, Jesus, might destroy him, Satan, who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those human beings who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus set us free from that fear. There are a lot of things in the world to fear, particularly right now. But the Bible makes it clear we don't live in fear. We don't have a spirit of fear. We have a spirit of love, and power, and a sound mind to overcome our fears. Because Jesus took flesh and blood died and rose again to destroy the power of sin and death in our lives and set us free. So in Job, the great question is asked, is what we're going to address this week and next week. The great question in the book of Job was this. Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? Now Job was a godly man, a, a just man. You can read the story for yourself and all that he went through. So he says, how, how can a man be righteous before God? And the answer is in our flesh and in our human effort, we cannot. I want to read you a little paragraph, and I want you to, I, I don't usually quote this much when I'm going to because this was so powerful as I was studying this last week, beginning to, put, beginning to put this together. I'm going to read you this paragraph. It's from a pastor named Ray Pritchard. And, and it just meant so much to me as I read it. I thought, I don't even know how to encapsulate that, so I'm just going to read it. I want you to listen closely and try not to fall asleep. And those of you that are already asleep, somebody wake them up. Oh, well, thank you. All right, here we go. This morning, we are considering the greatest question in the world. How can a man be right with God? It is the supreme problem of life. No more important question could ever be asked. Every sincere person asks this question. Every sincere Methodist asks, how can a man be right with God? Every sincere Presbyterian asks, how can a man be right with God? Every sincere Catholic asks, how can a man be right with God? Every sincere Lutheran asks, how can a man be right with God? Somewhere in the world this morning, a man is offering a child upon an altar, hoping to appease his angry God. Somewhere in the world, a man is cutting himself with a knife, hoping by his pain to win the approval of his deity. Somewhere in the world, a man lies on a bed of nails, proving by his mastery of pain to prove his worthiness of eternal life. In the Middle East, millions of believers in Allah pray toward Mecca this morning, following the dictates of their religion. In Haiti, followers of voodoo kill chickens and place the carcass before a makeshift altar, 
hoping to cause God to smile upon them with good fortune. Why? 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 The answer is always the same. The men and women who do these things desperately want to be right with God. They do what they do because they hope to appease God or to please God or to pacify God or to somehow manipulate God into favoring their cause. It's a totally sincere question, is it not? We all want to stand before God someday and have him declare us righteous in his sight. We all, that one fact explains most of the religious activity in the world around us from killing chickens to bowing to Mecca, from resting on a bed of nails to praying the rosary, from going to Sunday school to saying the Lord's Prayer. We do what we do because we want to be right with God and we don't know how. What is the answer to this great question? How can a man be right with God? Turn to Romans 3. We're going to answer that question. Romans 3, starting at verse 21. It's one of the most powerful passages in all the Bible. The entire book of Romans is incredible. Martin Luther called it the constitution of our faith. And in this first section of Romans, these first chapters, he lays out the concept of understanding that we're all guilty before God. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, you're guilty. But God has provided. What's the first word in Romans 3.21? But now... The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. He's going to begin to answer that great question that Job asked, that all men ask, how can a sinful man be right before a holy God? And the beauty of understanding the gospel is that the gospel is good news. What's the good news? You can be right with God. Jesus made that possible for you. Not because of you or any human effort, or your good looks, or your standing in the community, who you might know, when you stand before God, you're either in Christ or you're not. And if you're in Christ, you're in. If you're not in Christ, you're out. Because God is righteous. He's holy. He has a standard. It's called perfection. And how many of us are perfect? The answer is none. But the one who was perfect took my place. So I could be declared righteous in him. So the gospel is the good news. This text is going to explain the gospel. That we don't have any righteousness inherent in us. Look at verse 24. We're going to go back and forth. Look at verse 24. We're justified. That's the key word to understanding this whole passage. Justify. Justify simply means declared righteous. Just as if it hadn't occurred. He declares you, it's a legal term, where the judge says you're acquitted. Declares you righteous, positionally. For example, used it many times in my life. Fifty years ago, this past April 19th, Randy got saved. Became a Christian. I was born again. I was, whatever term you use, I became a Christ follower. April 19th, 1970. Fifty years ago. Now God knew from eternity past that I would be saved. He declares me righteous in Christ. The moment it occurred at space-time was April 19, 1970, just about this time of day. And I trusted Christ. So important we understand this principle. How many sins have I committed since April 19, 1970? 
I don't know, one or two. I've committed one or two in the last five minutes in my thought life probably. So since April 19th, 1970, on a practical basis, how many sins have I committed? More than I'll ever be able to count, remember, or confess to get forgiven, right? It's impossible. So what God does, the beauty of grace, mercy, the gospel, what we have to share is you're not ever going to be right with God in your own human effort, so stop trying. And understand, you come to God simply, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, like the thief on the cross. God redeems you and declares, I'm adopting you, his word. I'm adopting you into my family. You're my child. And yes, I know you're going to mess up. And I might have to spank you for messing up, but you will never stop being my child. Do you understand how many people in the church don't understand that? They think, I, I got to... Confess every single sin I commit. You can't remember every sin you committed yesterday. You know how I know that? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, every time you think about doing wrong, that's a sin. Think about that. Every time you think about it, not do it, consider doing it. You're guilty. And if you're guilty of one, you're guilty of how many? All. That's the point of the law. To show the children of Israel, you need grace. You can't do it on your own. And yet, Paul makes it clear in Philippians, and the Gospels make it clear, and history makes it clear, that the Pharisees, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders of the Jews the time of Jesus Christ, they all thought they were righteous. They were self-righteous. Read Philippians 3. Paul said, when he came to the law, I didn't sin. How arrogant can you be? But that's what he believed. I had a preacher tell me, this was a number of years ago, and we got into a little argument. I know you find it hard to believe. That he didn't think he sinned anymore. And you know what I said to him in my inimitable way and in wisdom? You know what I said to him? You're a liar. He didn't take that well. I said, oh, you're mad at me? Is that not a sin? My brother? He knew he sinned. You know you sin. I certainly know I do. That's why in my prayer life, this morning sitting over there, this morning when I got up, this afternoon when I pray, anytime I find myself praying, the Holy Spirit reminds me every time, remember grace, remember grace, remember what I've done for you. Stop complaining. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Trust me. Count your blessings. Think about, if nothing else, I've given you eternal life. Nobody can take that away from you. That's my gift to you. That's what Romans 3 is about. That's why it's vital we master this. We have no righteousness in us. So verse 24, back to it. We're justified freely, declared righteous by God's grace through the redemption that is where? In Christ Jesus. That's what God has done for us. Now look at verse 25, the, the latter part. 
God, in his forbearance, has passed over sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We're going to deal with all that in detail, but here's the point. Verse 24, he tells you what he's done. He's declared you righteous. Verse 25 tells you why. Because that's who he is. He is righteousness. He will declare you righteous and he will do the work for you. You can't earn it. You can't do it. Shows us what he did, why he did it. He's explaining justification, which is the act of me legally being declared right with God. And by the way, you cannot enter the presence of God unless you are righteous. And this text is going to explain to us how that happens. It's God's provision to meet our need, our sin debt. It's God's grace gift to us. It's based on the work of Jesus Christ alone. Alone. Romans 1, 2, and 3, up to this point in his, his letter... Paul has been pointing out man's desperate need for salvation. Now you get to verse 21, and the text in Romans shifts. He's been saying, this is your problem, your desperate need for salvation because you're a sinner. Now he shifts, he's going to explain how you can attain that righteousness. Martin Luther described this section of Romans from chapter 3 forward, this section, puts part of it. He described it as, quote, the marrow, the bone marrow of theology. Pastor Alan Carr called it the deepest theological sea in the New Testament. I want to raise you what Donald Gray Barnhouse, great theologian, said. I'm convinced today, Barnhouse wrote, that after many years of Bible study that these verses, what we're about to study, Romans 3.21 and following, I am convinced that these verses are the most important in the whole Bible. Understand them, and you will understand the Bible. Fail to comprehend their true meaning, and you'll be in darkness concerning Scripture. For here is the revelation of the being of God and the nature of his being. Here is the revelation of sin and of the depths of sin. Here is the revelation of God's righteousness and the infinite demands and provisions of that righteousness. Here is one of the keys of human history and the explanation of much that has happened before the time of Christ, as well as the revelation of the principles that were to prevail in God's dealings with men since Christ. Here, the mouths of those would rather, who, that would rather slander God because of his free pardon of sinners are closed forever. Here is the vindication of the nature and the character of God, righteous in all that he does. All right, let's look at it. Number one on your handout. It's a long introduction. Number one in your handout is that the righteousness of God is revealed in this passage. It's the essence of the book of Romans. He's going to answer that question. How can unrighteous sinners be declared righteous by God? On our own, it's impossible. But verse 21, but now the great transition in our hopeless state, God provides righteousness in contrast to the hopelessness of the previous passages. He says, here it is. Here it is. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great theologian, also said, quote, verse 21, but now, Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, these are the two greatest words in the Bible, 
but now. Man's total depravity, we're sinners, we're lost. And God's provision to solve our problem. It's like going to the auto mechanic. And you're Randy. Those of you who know me, know I could go to the auto mechanic and ask him, look at my car. And he could tell me anything in the world is wrong with it, and I would say what? Okay. That's why I go to a friend of mine that I've known forever in Midtown. I go to him because I trust him. If he tells me my car needs this, I know it needs it. So I let him fix it. I trust him. I've been going to him so long, he's not even there anymore. It's his son I go to now because I trust him. So I go to the auto mechanic, and he tells me, not my friend in Midtown, somebody else, he tells me, all these things are wrong with your car. Picture is, you got all these things wrong with you. And you can't pay to have it fixed. Now the picture here is, the auto mechanic then turns to you and says, don't worry about it. I'm going to fix it, and I'm going to charge you nothing. You got all these problems you can't pay for, you can't fix. Even if you could, you can't fix it. You're a sinner. God says, don't worry about it. I'm going to pay your debt. I'm going to fix it for you. All you got to do is trust me. Trust me. Place your faith in my work. And when I'm through with your car, you'll be able to get back in it and drive, and it'll be good because I know what I'm doing. Now, if I tried to fix it, what would happen? It ain't going to be fixed. It ain't going to be driven anywhere. But when I take it to my friend in Midtown, when he's through with it, it's fixed. Because he knows what he's doing. When I come to God, I can't fix my sin problem. I can still vividly remember growing up, and we went to church every Sunday growing up. My mom and I did. Every Sunday. And I was terrified of God because I knew I wasn't a good boy all the time. And I was afraid every time I did something wrong, God was going to get me. And then at age 16, somebody explained the gospel to me that you cannot be right with God except by trusting what Jesus did for you at the cross. Not what you do, but what he did. That's the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, great passage that we read at Easter. Listen closely to these words. 1 Corinthians 15. Some of Paul's same phraseology he uses here as he uses in Romans. But now, here it is again, exact same words. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. If Christ has not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep or passed away in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now, Christ is risen from the dead, and he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or passed away. He uses the metaphor of sleep at the end of the passage. He uses the metaphor of sleep because in Christ we die, but we get up again. Without Christ, you don't rise to new heights. You rise to the depths of the wrath of God. He poured it out on Christ so I can rise to new life. 
in Christ. Look at verse 21 again. So how does God reveal his righteousness? We're going to look at a few of these and we're going to stop today. How does God reveal his righteousness? Verse 21. But the righteousness of God first is revealed apart from the law. This is so important. It is so important. I don't care where you go to church. Christ church is a good church. We teach the word of God. We have good men in our leadership. Not perfect, but men trying to do what God wants to do. We preach the truth, whether it's from Rhiannon's ministry and Lynn's ministry with the children, all the way up through the student ministry. And everything that we do is centered around what would God have us do and, and the word of God. There are a lot of other good churches in Memphis, throughout the world. You will find in any church, and in some it's prevalent throughout. You'll find in any church, you'll find people who don't go to church. And you ask them, do you believe in God? If their answer is yes, some do, some don't. If their answer is yes, I believe in God. Now this is in church, for many out of church. Now I have this conversation with people at least once a week, somebody I talk to about this. This week I was talking to a, a medical professional about this very thing. So do you believe in God? Yes or no? If you do, if you die, how are you going to go to heaven? Are you going to heaven? And invariably, even in good churches, you ask them, if you die, are you going to heaven? You're going to find somebody that will say what? I hope so. I hope so. And inherent in that answer of I hope so is a mindset that is I'm doing the best I can. What have we already established from God's word about your best? Your best is what? Not good enough. No matter how good it is, it's not good enough. Why? Because you're a sinner. You're a sinner. So your best, it's still not, even though, even though it might be really good, it's still not good enough. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. Verse 21. God's righteousness is revealed, number one, Apart from the law. Now, there's two things that are inherent here in the text that you need to make sure you see both. Number one, he is talking to Jews about the Mosaic law. He is saying to the Jews, you can't keep the law of Moses and be righteous. By the way, he thought he could, remember? Before he became saved, became a Christian, Paul thought he was righteous. Again, read Philippians 3. It's after he lists his pedigree and he realizes, my pedigree, his words, not mine, my pedigree is a pile of manure. And I had the highest pedigree a man could have, his words. And it was a pile of manure next to knowing Christ. And then once I came to know Christ, I realized what I've been trusting in to save me is a pile of manure. Now all I want to do is be like Christ. So the point is twofold. Number one, it's so important. Number one, to the Jews, you can't keep them. If you could keep the Mosaic law, which you can't, by the way. Jesus made that clear in the Sermon on the Mount. If you can, even if you could keep the law as best you knew how, you'd still mess up somewhere. You're not perfect. So keeping the law is not going to make you righteous with God. But secondly, the Greek definite article is not here when it says law. So he's not specifically 
talking about the Mosaic law. He'll deal with that later in this passage. What he's talking about here, and this is where it's so important for us today. What he's talking about here is any law, any set of rules and regulations, any religious activity, any theological construct, anything you might want to come up with and write it into your confession of faith or your catechism or your ritual or whatever you want to call it. You, man, anything a man has come up with and structured and said, all right, you can be right with God, you've got to do A, B, C, D, E, all the way through your whatever your alphabet is. You've got to do these things, and if you do those, you're good. What is Paul saying here in verse 21? No matter what your law is, no matter what it looks like, it cannot make you righteous before God. If you don't think that's important, you don't have your eyes open to people. People you love, people you know. I hope it's none of you that you think I'm a good person. I was having this very conversation with a relative of mine last week. It doesn't go to church, not interested in it. I can always find somebody, and in my family, it's easy to find somebody that makes me look good. I'm not in jail like some of my family has been, maybe now. I'm not stealing from people like some of my family has done and is doing now. We can always find somebody that makes us look good, can't we? And by the way, that's human nature. For example, in the Garden of Eden, when sin occurred, what was the first thing Adam said to God when God showed up for their daily walk? God showed up and said, where are you? What's the first thing Adam said to God? The woman you gave me. And by the way, men have been doing that ever since. Not my fault, God, it's Mary's. We love to find somebody else to blame our problems on, right? Our our character flaws. Now God says, your sins are yours. Own them. Own them. And realize, apart from the law, you cannot come with a, with a set of rules and regulations that will make you righteous. There is no legalism. No religious activity, whether you, you get baptized every week, no matter how much money you give, how many rituals you go through, how many ceremonies you go through, there's nothing in your human character, any set of rules you might come up with that's going to make you right with God. Hoping your good outweighs your bad, because that's where I was before I got saved. I was like, well, if I die, I've been pretty good. I'll get to go to heaven, surely. Now, by the way, the church that I went to, that's the way it was encouraged. You've got to be really good. I hope you get there when you die, because you've been good enough. And I thought, well, I, I'm pretty good. I don't steal. I don't hurt anybody. I just play basketball all night long. That's the worst I do. Yeah, I've broken into a few schools, but, that, you know, we didn't hurt anything. We played basketball, and then we left. I'm not doing anything really bad. Because uh, I could compare myself with my older brother who was, who was doing all kinds of uh, stealing from the school and selling drugs and I mean, about anything you could do, he was doing it. And I could say, well, whew, at least I'm not Ricky. And then someone explained to me, you're just as guilty. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. You're guilty. Your Jewish law is not going to save you. Your Gentile paganism is not going to save you. 
particularly the culture in which this was written. Think about Roman mythology. How many gods did they have? The Greeks, how many gods did they have? We talked about, we studied Acts 17. How many were in Athens alone? How many public idols did they have? Over 30,000 in one city. So they had all kinds of gods. And in their mind, like sacrificing infants, that's what in the Old Testament, Molech, that's what they did. You took your firstborn and you put it, you burnt it on the altar to satisfy Molech, your God. They thought that'll do it. That's horrible in our minds. To them, that's what they figured out that would make them right with their God. No law, no human character, whether it's Mosaic law, whatever it might be, doesn't matter. Galatians chapter 2, the Bible says this. Paul wrote these words. Knowing a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died in vain. In other words, again, in there he was talking about the Mosaic law, but law in general we see here in Romans. If there is a law that, that man could write, which the Pharisees took the Mosaic law, added to it, the Torah and all that, said, if you could live up to that, and if by, by doing that, you could be made right with God, what is Paul saying in Galatians? Then there was no reason for Jesus Christ to die on the cross. That's what he's saying. And by the way, and this is where we're going to end today, I want to get into the details of that next week. Here's the point about all of that. And I was reading a great theologian this week, and I had thought about this before, but never really researched it and studied it and, and, and heard other people speak on it. But I was a guy that I greatly admire. I was reading his sermon on this passage, and here's what he said. Think about it this way. When God had Jesus of Nazareth, who was the Son of God, the Son of Man, die for our sins, why crucifixion? Why didn't he have us a, a chariot accident? Why didn't you just have him run over by a horse? Why crucifixion? Number one, it was public. Number two, he had prophesied that it was over, but why did he choose that way? Number one, it was public. Number two, if you study history, it's the most horrific way a man has ever found to torture another man to death. Through the scourging prior, that beating where your vital organs are exposed, crucifixion itself where you literally die trying to raise up and get a breath and your heart explodes. And it lasted over a period normally of three days. But number three, more than anything else, God wanted us to see how horrific sin is. By the way, God died for our sin. He who knew no sin. Philippians then tells us Jesus chose to humble himself and become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He chose to allow himself to be tortured to death in that horrific way. Why? For God so loved me. You have nothing to say to God except thank you. Thank you. Yes, we pray. Yes, we seek his face about all kinds of things. People hurting. 
COVID-19, our nation, people we know that are struggling with cancer. We, we love them. We care for them. We pray for them. But all your prayers should begin and end with, God, thank you for grace. Thank you for grace. I don't deserve it. I don't even know how to say thank you. It seems so inadequate. That's what Paul said in this very book, Romans chapter 12. I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. What's he talking about? Reasonable response to grace is say, here I am, Lord, use me. Reasonable response. Would you bow your heads, please? Our Father, we thank you that the most reasonable response we could possibly have to grace is to say, thank you. Now, Lord, how do you want to use me? How do you want to use me? I thank you for our people, both here in the building and are watching online. Well, we have people that love you. And I pray if anybody is struggling with this law thing, that I'm doing the best I can, they would simply say, oh, man, my best is never going to be good enough. What am I going to do? You've already given us the answer. It's called grace. It's called the gospel. That all I need to do is come to Jesus and say, forgive me, have mercy on me, save me, because I can't save myself. I know you did it for me. I know you did it for those that are here and watching. So, Lord, if, if there's somebody watching or somebody here who needs that, just prompt them right now to say that very thing to Jesus, forgive me. And then, Lord, use us who have been forgiven and who understand grace to share grace with our world. So many people don't understand grace. They just think it's another, it's just religion. It's not. Grace is you reaching down and saying, here, I'll give you something you don't deserve. Make us grateful and make us sharing people that share grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here in the building, please stand as we sing and close out our time together.